living in a very sophisticated and technological age like we do today, the ability to communicate and receive information is quite literally at our fingertips with a click of a button, the swipe of an index finger, or a voice command uttered towards an Apple Watch. You and I can read stories from all around the world in a matter of seconds. Stories about scores of sports games, like the NBA Finals, or multi-year coaching extensions, like Sam Pittman. Okay, no one's really all excited. Head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks just got a five-year extension? All right, okay, whatever. Trying to give a kudos once every 20 sermons. There's stories from Mr. Pittman all the way to Queen Elizabeth II, who will celebrate her platinum jubilee, marking 70 years of service in her ascension to the throne. I mean, think about it. Every single person in this room who has a smartphone device or something like it has the ability to know hundreds and even thousands of urgent and not-so-urgent stories. Important, but also trite updates about people's lives, like pictures that people post of what they ate for breakfast this morning. We have the ability to be informed about bizarre and wild weather patterns recorded in Oklahoma, all the way to Australia on YouTube videos, We have the ability to laugh with blog posts that are full of irony and satire. We have the ability to sit and listen in on as if we were really there to heated debates about politics, gun control, global warming, and theology. And depending on how tech-savvy we are and how glued in we are to what's really kind of going on, we have endless access to a massive collection of information. Predictions, facts, fake news, and upcoming events from all over the globe. Friends, if there is anything that our generation will be known for, is that we were not going to be known for a generation that did not have access to information. We have plenty of it. From our community here in Barling and in Fort Smith, throughout the state of Arkansas, throughout the United States, to across the pond, in Great Britain and beyond. With each new technological upgrade on our devices, our world continues to feel smaller and smaller. From features like Google Maps, weather radar apps, Facebook Live, to alerts that we set up on our phone that beep or vibrate to notify us of important news feeds. Many of these features on our technological devices tend to make us think we're in the know. They make us feel intimately connected to a massive and distant world. They can subtly make us imagine we have a good grasp on all that is going on in the world. But friends, modern technology also has a downside to it. The ability it gives us to know what's going on around the world also brings us into close encounter with the darkness of evil. And it brings us 
into raw exposure with the frequent injustices that goes on in our world every day. For example, just a few months ago, began the weekly television and internet footage of the war in Ukraine. Just several weeks ago, it was a racist-motivated shooting in Buffalo, New York. Last week, it was a horrific massacre of a shooting at a Texas elementary school, and not to mention the Sex Abuse Task Force report from the Southern Baptist Convention. And this week, another fatal shooting reported from a hospital in Tulsa. Friends, and to think that those events were bad enough, if we just scroll back through the last two years of our internet history and what we have seen and encountered from political strife, civil unrest, violent protests, along with sicknesses and death, lost jobs, divisions in schools, churches and families, we've seen in our own nation, we've seen in our own lives. Friends, if we stared at that news long enough, it could throw someone into a dark depression or sheer madness. Just a few days ago, I came across a blog by one female seminary student whose name is Leah. As a pastor of a local church and a father of a young daughter like myself, my heart was gripped and angered and full of compassion when I read a recent entry on her blog site. Listen to this excerpt from her story with the blog title of Reformed Theology in the Wake of Sexual Assault. Leah writes, I dreaded attending my Genesis to 1 Samuel scriptures class last fall. Not because I disliked my professor, my classmates, or the work. Rather, because it felt like we discussed a different sexual assault found in scripture every class. The names and stories of these women, Dinah, Hagar, Tamar, the unnamed concubine of Judges, and Jephthah, Jephthah's daughter, are vivid, carnal, and heartbreaking. It had only been a few mere months since the occurrence of my own sexual assault, and these classes were very difficult to sit through and participate in. As our professor posed questions regarding these women's suffering and God's role in ordaining or allowing evil, I would feel my heart beating faster, the blood draining from my face, and tears welling up. Usually, I longed to crawl under my seat and disappear for the rest of the class. Seminary classes certainly consist of the expected curriculum providing students with the challenges of exegeting difficult passages in Scripture and poring over the nuances of complex philosophical and theological doctrines. Yes, it can be a complicated thing to attend seminary, but it is even more complicated to be a victim of rape while you attend seminary. It is one matter to grapple cognitively with the problem of theodicy in class, for example, but when a sexual assault happens to you, your mind, body, and soul are forced to wrestle and embody these questions inside to the very depths of your core being. You begin to ask the question, why does God allow evil outside of your classroom and in your bed, shaking and whimpering from a nightmare? 
The question, does God ordain and cause bad things like my rape to happen, seems a lot more pertinent and pressing to answer while sobbing on the couch, curled in a fetal position, triggered with a PTSD episode. You begin to wonder, does God really protect those in his flock? As you double-check to ensure your doors are locked and deadbolted every night before bed. Sadly, a story like Leah's is not an anomaly. It's more common than any of us would want to realize. And the deeper, heart-throbbing, and soul-searching questions regarding God's sovereignty, man's sinfulness, and God's justice weighs heavy on many people's minds, like Leah's. Maybe those same questions are even on your mind this morning. Friends, have you experienced anything like this young lady has before? Whether personally against you or against someone you love? Have you experienced firsthand the darkness of evil being carried out against you or someone you love, but justice hasn't been carried out? Have you ever asked the Lord, how long Oh, Lord, how long will evil go unpunished? How long will it be before you vindicate your righteousness in my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life? Lord, when will you judge the whole world and dispose of evil decisively and finally forever? If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 286. Psalm 94. Please follow along with me. O oh Lord, God of vengeance, O oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. This is God's word. Psalm 94 is penned by an unnamed author. But the author does give us a sneak peek into the news feed of what's going on at this point in salvation history. This psalm is a mixture between a community lament as well as an imprecatory prayer. A community lament means that the psalmist speaks in sorrow both for himself individually, but also for the whole nation, the nation of Israel as a whole, who was suffering. They were suffering from the darkness of evil, having the upper hand in their lives. And justice was not being carried out. From what they could see with their eyes, life had become very unfair and egregiously unjust. Uh, Kids, just a quick word to you, if you're awake and paying attention. Life will not always be fair. Uh, Parents, be sure to follow up with your kids on what that might mean. But life is not always going to work out exactly the way you think, and the way it probably should. One of the things that we should tell our children early on is we're not in heaven yet. The kingdom of God has been initiated and inaugurated, but it has not been fully consummated. Until we reach the new heavens and new earth, evil sometimes will win the day. A few years ago, I was going through a horrific situation in this community. Almost no pastor knew what to tell me, except one pastor in North Carolina. He wrote a book on stuff like I went through. After 20 years later, he writes the book, gets me on the phone. He says, tell me what's going on. He said, brother... I don't know what to tell you. But we both have similar theology. We know Jesus wins in the end. But along the way, Satan gets a few W's. And we're going to have to expect that. Friends, this world will be very unfair and egregiously unjust while we live in this fallen place. And in Psalm 94, this was no random group of people either. Who were suffering. This was God's beloved people. The people that God's steadfast and never failing love had been poured out upon out of the riches of his grace and mercy. 
This was the nation of Israel, that unique people under the old covenant that God had established a promise with. This is the creator of the whole world. They were in covenant with the holy and sovereign king who rules over all the nations. And multiple times in this psalm, the the psalmist actually alludes to this special relationship that the Lord had with them. He shows this unique relationship by referencing these people as your people. That's there in verses 5 and 14. Look with me. Look quickly at verse 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. And then look down at verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. You'll notice also that just like a dozen or so other psalms in the Psalter, this contains an imprecatory prayer within it. Now, in case you're not familiar with that language, imprecatory psalms are when the righteous call out for God to blot out, to desolate, and to utterly destroy the wicked. The wicked being defined fundamentally as those who are unrepentant in their rebellion to God, rebellion to his kingdom, and rebellion to God's anointed king of that kingdom. And precatory psalms are also psalms that contain prayers for judgment, for God's judgment to fall upon the enemies of God because they are destroying God's people. They are destroying people that he loves. They are treating others made in the image of God unjustly. These psalms also inevitably teach us that there is a place in the Christian life for believers to have godly or righteous anger, godly or righteous indignation towards sin and injustice in the world. Beloved, that means this. We should not retreat into moral indifference from the evil we encounter in this life. We should not become numb to the depravity that goes on into the world. As Glenn Scrivener has put it very plainly, quote, it's a good thing to have a problem with evil. Evil is evil. The real problem would be not having a problem with it. Friends, these psalms make us aware that God hates sin God is just, and he will not tolerate it. As the body of Christ, we of all people should lament over evil. It should grieve, and it should anger us. Friends, we should all be praying as a part of our weekly prayers, God, give me a hatred for sin like you have. Give me a love for that which is good that you have. What did Jeff read earlier from Romans 12, verse 9? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And these psalms teach us, at least in part, what to do with that anger. What are we supposed to do when our blood is boiling? And when our sorrow keeps us up at night or interrupts our day? What do we do with it as Christians? These psalms teach us that we are to pour out our anger to the Lord in prayer. 
And we should wait with confidence that one day he will make all wrongs right on the day of judgment. Sometimes people ask, how do these imprecatory prayers square up against Jesus' teaching in the New Testament to love our enemies? That's a good question to ask. The short answer, while we live in this fallen world, we should first and foremost fervently pray for the enemies of God to be saved through the preaching of the gospel. Listen, if we're Christians here this morning, guess what? We too were once enemies of God. We too were once in hostility to this glorious king. We were rebels hating God and hating one another. Read Romans 8, 7. Read Titus 3, 3. Our obituary before God was a really bad one, spiritually speaking. Romans 5.10 tells us we were once his enemies who have now been reconciled through the blood of his son. Friends, think about it. If you're a Christian here today, somebody prayed for you. If you're a Christian here today, somebody put up with your nonsense, bore you up with patience, praying that God would grant repentance. Friends, we too should embody the kindness and patience of God that draws the enemies of God unto repentance. In fact, it's not even just our prayer lives that should reflect this gospel priority, but the way we live our lives among unbelievers, even as church members. We should seek to commend the gospel, especially when the enemy tries to oppose us. Don't you remember Philippians 1? Ladies went through the Bible study a year or so ago. Might even be two years ago now. It's all kind of muddied in my mind. But Philippians 1, 27 to 29, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you were standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sight of them, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So in order to commend the gospel and our witness for Christ, the bulk of the New Testament instructs us to live this way. We are called to bless our enemies when they curse us and persecute us and to pray for our enemies that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We should also, by God's grace, show them kindness and mercy and even generosity when possible, expecting nothing in return. And when you combine these imprecatory prayers with the overall teaching of Jesus and the apostles of the New Testament— the Bible calls us as God's people to live at a higher standard. We are to have a higher calling than what our natural flesh wants to do when we're wronged. Friends, let me tell you what that basically means. We need to hear this afresh right now in our culture, regardless of what side of the line you fall on with these things. As Christians, we should not be self-appointed 24-7 justice vigilantes. We as Christians, our heart posture 
should be to pray and to be godly before our most ungodly opponents. Sometimes that evil gets so ugly, we must appeal to civil authorities, to the civil magistrate, because God says in his word he has appointed the civil magistrate to inflict God's wrath on evildoers. So reporting someone to the police or working in law enforcement or protecting the citizens of a country is a noble and lofty thing to do. But friends, with even all those things, I just want to say what I think is divisive in a lot of places, but say it in the most peaceful way. Christians can divide over matters like gun control. Christians can divide at what depths self-defense can happen. But with all that being said, the basic heart posture in normal, ordinary, every week situations is what we heard earlier from Romans 12, verses 17 to 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, that means when civil magistrates don't do their job to punish the evildoer, ultimately we place our injustice in this life into the hands of Almighty God. Give place for the wrath of God. You know what that means? We can't handle it. We don't even know what perfect justice is because we're too small and too sinful to do it. God says, move out the way. Give place for my wrath. Friends, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom on difficult situations believers face all around the world, maybe even yourself. What does that look like? At the end of the day, give place for God's wrath. These Psalms teach us very clearly that it should be normal for Christians too to cry out to the Lord for justice. A calling out to God for justice to be carried out, whether in this life or on the final day of judgment in the life to come. These Psalms give us words to our deepest pain, towards the darkest evil we might encounter in this world. Friends, the Psalms put words to our emotions as we wait upon God's righteous anger and judgment to be poured out at his appointed timing. So then that begs the question, how shall the righteous, how shall God's beloved children live in a world full of pain, evil, and frequent injustice? How will God's people hold fast in their faith in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that lacks faith in God. I have three main points. Point number one is the longest. Point two are much, much quicker. Point number one, cry out to the God of justice. Cry out to the God of justice. Point number two, be thankful for the Lord's discipline. Be thankful for the Lord's discipline. And number three, comfort your soul with the promises of God. Comfort your soul with the promises of God. Let's look at that first one. Cry out to the God of justice. Well, how do we do that? How do we cry out 
to the God of justice. We pray. We pray. We pray to God and first acknowledge what is true about God. We look to Scripture, not our feelings, not the Internet, but to Scripture to discover what God is like. And we study to find out what He loves and what He hates, what He's pleased with and what He is displeased with. And once we do that, we then humbly and honestly utter our lament and anger and pain back to God. Beloved, God is not intimidated with our problems. He's not put off or somehow scratching his head with whatever dilemma the United States of America might be facing. He saw the problem coming into our lives, into our nation's lives, well beyond and before we ever did. And he knows not only the actions and words of evil people, he even sees the motives of people's hearts. Friends, nothing will ever catch God off guard. Nothing that we ever pray to him will ever surprise him. And friends, this same God is compassionate to those who are hurting and oppressed, to those who have been harmed unjustly. And we can come to him and trust him, even with our most painful life experiences. And once we begin doing that, we should not be stoic. We should not deny how we feel towards our pain. Our feelings don't rule the day. Our feelings are not sovereign, but they're a part of our human personhood. God gave us feelings to turn into prayers back to God. We should express anger over sin, not indifference. We should express detesting of evil, not turning a blind eye. We should grieve when we see injustice. And again, we express all those emotions to God. We should pray with one another when we're weak. We should pray for one another when we're hurt. And all in all, as God's children, when we are burdened, by the evil and injustice around us, and it shows its ugly head right in your life, we should utter all our pain back to God. Friends, in short, this is really it. We should look to God for help, for hope, and for justice. We should look to God for help, for hope, and for justice. Look with me at verses one to three. Oh Lord, God of vengeance, oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? The psalmist utters the community lament by directing his attention and the nation's attention to God's just character. Notice there, verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance. Or your translation could say the God who avenges. It literally means he knows how to perfectly pay out what is due to his enemies. Verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth. You might be sitting here this morning saying, Pastor Blake, Pastor Blake, I just got done with 1 John. It's a wonderful book. But a God of vengeance? 
I thought our God is a God of love. 1 John 4, 8, I memorized it this past week, Pastor Blake. God is love. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what 1 John 4, 8 says. It's a wonderful thing to meditate on. But because God is love, he will hate all that which is evil and wrong. Let's put on our logical thinking caps this morning, shall we? If a husband truly loves his wife, wants to lay down his life for his wife, he will hate anything that seeks to harm his wife, whether that's her reputation or her overall welfare. If a father truly loves his children, he will hate anything that seeks to harm his children, whether that's their reputation over the overall welfare. Friends, God is holy, holy, holy. And God is righteous and good. God loves everything that is good and just and pure and lovely. God loves everything that reflects his good and righteous character. God loves looking at himself because he is the very essence of all that is good. God is good. He only does that which is good. He loves good, and therefore God must hate all that is not good. Anything that perverts or pollutes what God defines as good, he cannot approve. He cannot look upon and take pleasure in sin and evil and injustice. It's against his very nature. And beloved, we must remember that our God is a just judge. That means when his perfect law is transgressed, he will see to it that justice is carried out. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I wonder how many people this week will look at a quarter and see the little phrase, in God we trust, and actually be thinking consciously that God is also my judge. Maybe use that as an evangelistic track this week. Flip a coin, show it to them, and ask, have you ever thought about God as your judge? You see, unlike human judges, our God cannot be bribed or tricked. He doesn't need our vote. He doesn't need parades. And our God shows no partiality to anyone. Economic status, marital status, what family you grew up in, or what nation you were born in, none of it will sway his judgment on the last day when we give an account for our life. Because we are created in God's image, any desire we might have for justice in this life is showing us instinctively that the God we serve is a judge himself. When we see injustice, we disapprove of it because we are made in the image of the just God. When we see injustice, we disapprove of it because we are made in the image of the just God. He created everything. All the people of the universe are made in his image and will be held accountable to him. The Bible makes this abundantly clear that all of us are going to die and all of us are going to stand before him in judgment. 
Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And that judgment will involve every person that has ever lived, and it includes a judgment over the secrets of our hearts, Romans 2, 16 says. Or consider how vulnerable and exposing God's judgment will be for everyone. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to which we must give an account. Listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to ask you a question that you should seriously think about. How much time have you spent thinking about God's judgment of you? How much time have you spent in the life God gave you thinking about God's judgment of you? If you were to die right now and get cross-examined by the Lord of glory, as he unfolds in his books everything written that we have done, which is a reflection of our hearts. How would you fare? There's one thing for you to know what you've done wrong and evil. There's another thing for others to know what you've done wrong and evil. There's a whole other thing for an omniscient God who sees everything about us from the inside out. I pray, dear non-Christian, You would not live another day suppressing the truth that you will be judged one day. I pray that you would seek this just God and find out how to be justified before him, before it's too late. In Psalm 94, we see that this cry for justice was in relation to a certain type of people that was bearing and bringing the suffering into their lives. Look at me at verse 2. He calls them the proud. Verse 3, he refers to them as the wicked. And then in verses 4 to 7, he begins to almost like take a crayon in a new coloring book and color in a little more about what these evildoers were like, how proud and wicked they were by what they said and what they did. Look with me in starting in verse 4. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. These ungodly and wicked people are taking advantage and even killing some of the most vulnerable human beings in their community. Did you catch the descriptions of those people? the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. He first mentions the widow. Women in this day would have had no husband still around to care for them, to protect them, and to provide for them. The widows in Israel's day were utterly dependent on the community of God's people to hold them up in sustenance for their week-by-week and year-by-year livelihood. They killed the widows. He also mentions the sojourner. 
It could even literally be translated the refugees. This was someone who had no permanent place to live with no inherited rights. This would have been very similar to our idea of today of someone seeking an asylum. They had no home. They had no rights. They had no place to stay. They killed the sojourners. And he also mentions they crushed, afflicted, and even murdered the fatherless. The orphan. Young and helpless children with no male headship covering at home. Those in that society who would be the most susceptible to injustice since they had no power or no voice to stand up for themselves. They killed the fatherless. Let the weight of that fall upon your soul this morning. Consider the overt callousness that a person has to have the pride, the arrogance to exploit, to abuse, and to destroy the weakest and most helpless people in a society. Friends, they did this sitting with a high hand. They did this arrogantly without any sign of conviction, no remorse, no hesitation. Who are these people? Who are these people who were on God's posters of his most wanted list for future judgment if they did not repent? Who are they? Are they savage outsiders living in a third world country that are inhumane pagans? Interestingly, verse 7 indicates that these wicked men refer to God in the same way that the covenant people of God did. They say in verse 7, the Lord, Yah, in Hebrew. The God of Jacob, the Elohim of Jacob, or, or Israel, does not perceive. Friends, they have been indoctrinated. They have grown up within the nation of Israel. Do you perceive what's going on here in Psalm 94? These wicked and proud men were not gangbangers from a back alley somewhere. These were not foreign terrorists coming to wreak havoc from Canaan into Israel. No, these were people who were on the inside of the community of God's precious and beloved people. These were people who outwardly fellowshiped with God's people. They outwardly did life and ministry with God's people. They knew the hymns. They knew the verses. They called on God as Elohim. And these people also had influence. These people had power. These people had the ability to take advantage of the weakest sheep of God's pasture for their own advantage. They deceived others and were deceiving themselves. Who are these people? Might need to turn me up. The rain's coming. Look at verses 20 to 21. 
Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Friends, these were corrupt leaders ruling over the people of God and using their roles of leadership to harm those under their care. These are people that we might see today in some of our own news feeds, such as corrupt politicians telling lies and using their platforms to exploit people's money for personal gain. Spineless judges who can be bribed with money in allowing justice to be carried out. Godless men and women in our school systems who promote evil and reject God's standard of righteousness. Abusive men and women living secret lives in their homes while confusing their children of what love and family is all about. And in the church today, these are the type of proud leaders of what Jesus calls in the New Testament wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm an under-shepherd, and my job is to help spot the wolf so you stay away from the wolf. You know what a wolf is? A wolf carries around his Bible in his hand, but he doesn't hide God's word in his heart. There are men in this community, there are men who cowardly left this community that are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're evil, they're ungodly, they wear the title of deacon and pastor, and God despises their corrupt hypocrisy in Christ's church. They led some of you astray a couple of years ago, and you didn't know it because you were sheep following shepherds like a Bible tells us to. And they're wrong. They're evil. The only reason I'm not name-calling wolves right now is our church is small enough you can come talk to me in the lobby. Stay away from them. They're evil. They mean nothing good for Christ's church. They hold God's word in their hand, but they do not hide them in their hearts. These are what the apostle Jude says happens in so many churches. Jude 1, 12 and 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Friends, these leaders in Israel in Psalm 94 were committing an abomination before God. They were using their God-ordained leadership roles not to protect the people, not to promote righteousness among the people, not to restrain evil amongst the people, but in fact, the total opposite. They were scheming evil plans against the righteous and condemning the innocent while committing shameful acts of evil 
and approving of those who do the same. Brothers and sisters, in 2022, we are living in a strange world. Don't try to wish the good old days of whatever you define the good old days. Welcome to reality right now. We live in a strange world. The waves of satanic-influenced worldly ways of thinking are crashing down on so many people's lives right now, and they don't even realize it. As author David Wells says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. I can speak for us living here in America. That's exactly where we're at right now. We are living in a day and age when our society is faster and faster, becoming darker and darker in its approval of evil and its rejection of God's righteousness. Whether it's abortion, killing the unborn, who have human rights and human dignity that should be protected, or Gay Pride Month, a whole 30 days dedicated to celebrating sin that God hates. Friends, God in his word absolutely detests anyone who touches the ordinance of gender or the creation ordinance of gender and the creation ordinance of marriage. A whole month in our country is devoted to men and women who are so confused who make an idol out of their human sexuality. They pervert God's design. They attend parades. They wave rainbow flags in our face and a whole lot more. And they begin to make their sexuality whatever they want it to be and allow that to be their fundamental identity over being an image bearer of God. Friends, if if you know someone you love today who's caught up in that lifestyle, pray for them. Pursue them in love. They're empty. They're hurting. You might be the only Christian they know. Pray for God to give you courage how to graciously speak the truth in love. As Rosaria Butterfield, who once was a lesbian, who's now a solid Christian, she says, I wasn't saved out of homosexuality. I was saved out of unbelief. Friends, pray for those who are caught up in those snares. This same type of worldly mindset has even found itself in the church too, right? It doesn't just stay in politics. It doesn't just stay in schools. It gets in the church whether it's ungodly deacons running off good pastors and faithful church members who stand for truth, or loud and quarrelsome women in the church who are busybodies and full of selfish ambition demanding to get their own way, or spineless pastors who won't call sin, sin, evil, evil, or injustice, injustice, and it shows up all over the ministry. Friends, when the world creeps into the church and gets comfortable, the church will go to bed with the world. Friends, among all the wonderful reasons it is to be a Christian right now in this strange world, what an opportunity to plant, replant, and pray for solid, healthy, gospel-preaching churches to be littered all over this country, starting right here in the River Valley right now. It might get super dark really fast, just in a few more years, But boy, the gospel's going to shine brightly. And healthy churches are going to be so attractive when everyone's bought the lies of sin and culture and realized it didn't deliver. They're going to be looking for hope. 
There's going to be people walking through those doors that you would never be friends with in a normal week, but they want Jesus. Friends, let's pray now for our church and other churches to get ready for those sinful refugees when they need to find Jesus. It might get really, really dark, but boy, it's a wonderful time to be a Christian in Christ's church. Pray that we would stay committed to the gospel and that the light of God's truth would radiate in the midst of a dark place. Well, friends, what should we do if we find ourselves in situations at work, at home, in school, or God forbid, even in a church where we do see sin look normal and righteousness look strange? Friends, let me just give you a few applications. There's just so much I could say to this sermon. I just, I could probably preach the whole sermon on what I'm about to say, but here's just some things to think about. First, do what we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. Cry out to God for justice. Cry out to God for justice and cry out for God to have mercy upon us. Secondly, alongside praying, some believers might have to flee a country, flee a state to find refuge somewhere where the laws aren't as hostile against Christianity. Some believers may enter into the public square, be it politics or the judicial system or the school system, and try to persuade others to view justice and morality from a Christian worldview. Others of us might encourage believers to leave a church whose leadership is unbiblical and ungodly, to encourage those dear sheep to pick up all for the sake of Christ and find a good church that would help them spiritually. And others of us might even encourage someone to find refuge from a toxic and dangerous living environment. Uh, Friends, we should be, of all people, the church, ready to receive those who have been abused, taken advantage of, and left on the road to die. The orphan, the widow, that's pure and undefiled religion. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, in all these things, cry out to to God. He is the God of justice and he hears our prayers. Point number two and three, which are going to be shorter. So point number two, be thankful for the Lord's discipline. Be thankful for the Lord's discipline. Look with me at verses 8 to 15. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. And really in verses 8 to 11, we see the description of these ungodly leaders and their debased minds. In summary, what are these leaders like? They're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, and they're complete fools in the eyes of God. They mock, they scoff, and they have the audacity to say, God doesn't see, God doesn't know, They're practically saying, God is dead. But the psalmist 
boldly responds in this way. The Lord is the creator of all men. Of course he sees. The Lord is the sovereign king over all nations. Of course he knows. And the Lord is the omniscient mind reader. Of course he knows their plans and of course he knows their thoughts. He knows all the futile thinking that these wicked people scheme when their doors are closed and no one's around. But then in verses 12 to 15, we see in stark contrast the wonderful blessing of belonging to God as one of his beloved children. In verse 12, the psalmist declares that we are blessed if we are disciplined by the Lord. And we are blessed if he reveals his law, his word to us. Some people ask, what is the discipline of the Lord? How can you know when you're being disciplined by the Lord? Great question. A lot to answer. In one sitting, we'd have to turn to like 10 passages. Let me give you a brief definition. What is the discipline of the Lord? It's God's fatherly commitment to make our character more like his son, Jesus Christ. It's God's fatherly commitment to make our character more like his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, our Heavenly Father does not need to go to Home Depot and find tools to work on us. He is the potter, and guess what? We are the clay, full of dirt and full of sin and full of inconsistencies. But he doesn't need our advice. He's got all the tools in the tool shed to bring about fatherly discipline that makes us like Jesus. He can use painful thorns in our flesh that keep us dependent on God's grace, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord may even in his sovereignty allow us to be in a prolonged season where we're in an illness that we have to bear up. He may even bring about into our lives a season of persecution, slander, and hostility from ungodly people. He may even bring a timely word of correction or rebuke from a godly friend, a family member, or a fellow church member. The Lord may use a preacher and a sermon and a Bible study to light up our soul with conviction and joy in him. All in all, God does not lack any resources when he's disciplining and training his children. He can even use injustice, as we see in Psalm 94, something he hates, and use it for good in his own people's lives. Friends, we may not see all the good purposes God has for all the difficult things we face in this world and in our life, but God has promised that he will bring about his intended good in due season. See, God's ways are mysterious. God's ways are not mysterious in the sense that they're like, you can't like know anything. But we have to always remember when God's disciplining his children, he doesn't expect his children to know all that he's doing. All he asks his children is to trust that I love you from what I'm bringing into your life. What did the Lord say in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Brothers and sisters, are you thankful 
for the ways God has brought difficult things into your life to discipline you? I'm talking more of the retrospect looking back, by the way. Not in the moment. It's always painful. Doesn't make any sense. It's mysterious. Feels like a fog. What did Spurgeon say? When you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. If you're disciplined by the Lord, and you find yourself closer to him as a result of whatever it is, Friends, you're blessed. Warren Wearsby once said this, your heavenly father is never nearer to you than when he is pruning you. Sometimes he cuts away the dead wood that might cause trouble, but often he cuts off the living tissue that is robbing you of spiritual vigor. Pruning does not simply mean spiritual surgery that removes what is bad. It can also mean cutting away the good and the better so that we might enjoy the best. Yes, pruning hurts. But it also helps. We may not enjoy it, but we need it. Oh, friends, be thankful for the Lord's discipline in our lives. Why? For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Lastly, point number three, comfort your soul with the promises of God. How shall God's beloved children live in a world full of pain, evil, and injustice? How will God hold us fast in our faith amidst a crooked and perverse generation that lacks faith in this God? We comfort our souls with the promises of God. In verses 16 to 23, the psalmist raises a question to himself this time. It's, it's been a corporate lament up to this point, but now he's going to get real personal as he stands before the people. And then he ends the psalm in verse 23 with a confident assertion. So a question in verse 16 that God brings him from a question to confidence in verse 23. That's a part of God's fatherly discipline. He takes our questions and he teaches us to trust in what we can be confident in. He asks in verse 16, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? In other words, who's going to represent me in court? Who's going to speak up for me when I'm getting bullied? Who's going to protect me when I'm no longer protected by those I thought I loved? He then answers the question by reminding himself of these promises from God. Friends, it's the same promises made to all of us who repent of our sins and trust in God's promised king, King Jesus. What are those promises? Briefly, look at verse 17. The Lord was his help. Jesus said, trust in me, trust in the Father, and I will send the helper the Holy Spirit, and he will be our advocate. He will help us in our time of need. Verse 18, the Lord's steadfast love had held him up. It literally means supported him from slipping and falling off the side of a ledge. In Jesus, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases to hold us fast. 
Our faith, even when it's at its weakest, is still held firmly in his grip. Verse 19, the Lord's consolations, his compassion and his comforting presence cheered his soul. In Jesus, we are given an inward rest, an inner peace in the face of outward troubles. Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. But then in verses 22 to 23, the psalmist concludes. He had a question. He comforted his doubts with promises, and it left him with confidence. Okay? That's what your morning quiet time or nighttime quiet time, whenever you have it, is basically going to sound like most days. I've got questions. I've got doubts. Okay, remind me of your promises, God. And then God's going to say, keep trusting me, keep trusting me, keep trusting me, because I'm going to give you, get you to the place where you're confident again. What is his confident assertion? Look at verses 22 and 23. But the Lord has become my stronghold in my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Do you remember Leah? The young lady I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon? This was the seminary student who had been sexually assaulted and was wrestling with the topic God's sovereignty and injustice in the world. As she continued studying God's word closely, seeking the Lord for help and hope in her trauma, she wrote down what brought her great comfort. This dear sister was bold enough to put this on the internet, which I appreciated. She wrote down at the top how her reformed theology, or big God theology, intersected with her deepest pain in the face of evil. Listen to what she said. In the aftermath of my sexual assault, I found great comfort within the doctrines of my Reformed faith and theology. Here were the three doctrines. Number one, God's providence rules over all. Number two, total depravity is real. Mankind's radical sinful condition is not just a doctrine, it is a real experience in this world. And number three, God cares deeply for justice. She writes, The law of Moses and witness of Scripture teach that earthly justice may be pursued inside and outside of human courts. However, the statistics regarding the low conviction rate for sexual assault in the United States are quite grim. Even if one bravely reports a sexual assault case to the police, the police must decide whether or not to further investigate the case. If they do, they will take the case to the DA, who will then make another decision on whether or not the case has sufficient evidence to continue to a trial or to make a plea deal. Thus, in the criminal justice system today, there is very little assurance and hope that victims of sexual crimes will ever see a conviction or another form of legal justice, even if they report their attacker. Scripture demonstrates over and over that God cares deeply about upholding the case of the afflicted and the oppressed, 
of attaining justice for the widow and the orphan. No one hates sin more than God, and he promises that he will allow, he will, he will allow no sin to go unpunished. Instead, he will repay everyone according to their deeds. Vengeance is the Lord's. They are his own cause. I find if one attempts to de-emphasize these attributes of God's nature and only view him as a gentle, loving father, perhaps as the Socinians did, God is wrongfully stripped of his core character as the ultimate judge. And those who suffer at the hands of lawbreakers and oppressors are quite literally robbed of God's own divine promises of due justice. As good and evil are objectively rooted in the will of God alone, I am able to trust that justice will be executed on my behalf through God's own divine punishment. God will not allow the wicked to prosper eternally. Their rule one day will come to an end, and only the righteous will prevail and receive their eternal reward. Jesus suffered and died to satisfy the proper justice. By Christ's own suffering, sinners were not repaid according to our sins, but Christ satisfied and preserved the justice of God. Thus, through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see all God's attributes working together. His grace, mercy, love, righteousness, holiness, and power uphold his justice perfectly. Though I hope and pray that my assaulter receives the due justice he deserves legally and temporally, more importantly, I find consolation in knowing that he may also repent and find restoration. In this world where there is so much evil, there remains an ironic comfort in recognizing that God has the power to pardon even the most heinous of sins through the satisfactory work of Christ. This truth is expressed by Fanny Crosby in her well-known hymn, To God Be the Glory. Even the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. I believe that an acknowledgement and understanding of the workings of God's justice, both spiritually and materially, provide an incredible opportunity for me to pray for real earthly justice and retribution to be done on my behalf without diminishing the almost unfathomable offering of spiritual forgiveness for even my worst enemy. What hope of restoration for all of us until the day of the consummation where there will be no more evil, tears, or suffering. I will hold on until that day, resting in these truths revealed in Scripture. Soli Deo Gloria, Leah. What brought Leah comfort in the end? In the end, it was biblical truths that ultimately culminates in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the only true and perfectly righteous and just man to ever live, laid down his life for the sins of the unrighteous and unjust like us. In Christ, God has made many of his enemies his children. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To my non-Christian friend, you should come to Jesus now for forgiveness and receive him as Savior. 
But if you run from him now, you will meet him one day as judge. Members of CCBC, the promise of judgment day remains a promise. And it means that one day all evil will be given a just retribution. One day every injustice and evil atrocity you and I face or anyone faces that we care about will be judged. It will have either been judged by the finished work of Christ on the cross for repentant sinners or it will be judged by Jesus as judge when he cast the wicked into hell. As Leon Morris has written, quote, judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, and he holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. So to him, I leave it all. Let's pray. O God of vengeance, you are the just judge of the whole earth. Every person will give an account for their life, either as one of your children for reward or as a criminal for punishment. Father, we praise you that in Christ we will not be judged for our sins, for that was laid upon Christ, the truly just one, so that you might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Lord, we also pray for those in here who have been hurt harmed, abused, taken advantage of, and muted and muffled by corrupt people. Lord, we pray that you would bring the enemies that oppose your kingdom, that oppose your king, that oppose your people. Either bring them to repentance, or we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name, amen.